0: Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to start by reading verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you As sojourners and exiles To abstain from the passions of the flesh Which wage war against your soul Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable So that when they speak against you as evildoers They may see your good deeds And glorify God on the day of visitation Turn to your neighbor and say we're in a war and the war we're in is not the war that many people think we're in. Uh, oftentimes the war that we convince ourselves we're in is a war against uh the the temporary world around us, rather than recognizing that the greater war that we fight is a war against our own flesh. In fact, the wars that we see and that we fight seemingly around on the world as we know it are as the result of the war against our flesh. Uh, we've talked about several times uh, Galatians and the emphasis there that the things of the spirit are opposed to the things of the flesh and vice versa. And yet, we come back to this again and again because you and I are most prone not to recognize that we are in a war against our flesh. Now, that really is the bad news. The good news is, in Christ, there is already victory. In Christ, we don't have to wonder who will win that war, but it is only in Christ, This means that you and I, on our own, are powerless against our own flesh. But in the same breath, you and I also have to recognize that if we're going to win the war against our flesh, it's going to take us fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, the exhortation that Peter gives to the church here is... In uh, urging as sojourners and exiles, which we've discussed, but as a reminder, this idea of a sojourner and an exile, speaking specifically to the churches throughout the region of Turkey in this specific letter, but broadly speaking applies to anyone who says, I follow Jesus. Because in the moment of saying, I choose to identify, I I find my identity in Christ alone, then this new identity shifts from being one who serves themselves to being one who serves Christ alone. And when we say that, it becomes really evident just how much of a battle that this becomes. Now, a piece of this comes when we stop and we consider uh, what does it look like for us to serve. And unfortunately, many of us in the Western world have this connotation that the idea of serving the Lord looks like participating in a specific church ministry. But I want to challenge our thinking in that. And maybe you don't have that concept in your mind, but... Somewhere we have an idea in our minds about what serving looks like. And it looks like a compartment of our lives rather than a piece of our identity. And I want to challenge the notion today that the very concept of being a servant of Christ should be the entirety of what we yearn for and strive to be, not a part of it. Now, another question we're going to wrestle with today is, why should this be who we are? Why is it that being a servant is who we should be? And in verse 12, there is this emphasis, this challenge to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles here, you could look at through the lens of unbelievers. Keep it. Keep your conduct honorable amongst them so that when they speak against you. Everyone say when. It doesn't say if they speak against you. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. At the day of visitation, that's when Jesus returns. And a piece of this to understand as we get ready to dive into the rest of this chapter is that the only time that you may get any accolades for walking and living as a servant of God may be when Jesus returns. And I pray that as we begin to unpack this further, this idea of what it, that should look like, that we would Anticipate with joy a day when our Master, our Lord, our Savior returns. And we say, Lord, this is everything that I could do for you. And it doesn't compare to what you have given me. Father, as we jump into this text, may we may you use it to help us become as a people those who simply yearn to serve you. Lord, may you open our eyes to how we should walk, how we should live, who we should be. Father, we're trusting you to build your church on a foundation that is firm and secure and glorifies you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the rest of this chapter, verse starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, But living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Now, in the scope of this, there's a verse in this section of Scripture that uh, if you grasp nothing else, I want you to even strive to memorize this verse. It's at the heart of this entire thought that Peter's communicating to the church. And it's verse 16. Live as people who are free. Everyone say free. Free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants Now, when we read through a passage like this, without fail, there's ideas and concepts that stick out to us that even on the surface rub us maybe a little bit rough and go, wait a minute. And verse 13 tends to be one of those areas. Be subject for the Lord's sake. That's really important. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, the reason this is so challenging is because it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on. You read this verse and you go, well, what if the foolish people are the ones in those positions? And notoriously, time and time again, you and I have to wrestle with passages like this that give very specific instruction for the people of God to be people who honor authoritative structures that God has put in place. And yet, in the same breath, you and I are a people given very clear instructions to stand firmly on what is true, on what is right, on what is just on what is holy, more specifically on what God has commanded of us. And so we come to a place in scripture and we become conflicted because some of you look at the state of authority authority around you and you go, I don't see anything godly about it. Whether that be in my job, it be in the leadership over our state, our country, you, you you put it in any scope or sequence of this, and you go, know, "How am I supposed to live this way?" Romans thirteen echoes this same sentiment and is challenging to us, as it calls for us to uh, honor authoritative structures, understanding that it is God who puts people in places of leadership. Now, what's really challenging about this? is for us to step back and actually answer the question, do we believe or not that God is sovereign over those in earthly leadership? Both in good ways and in bad. And it doesn't take long for us to look throughout the text of Scripture and even back into the Old Testament to see very specific examples when God Allowed the people to put someone into authority who was there to bring about judgment upon a group of people. And we have to answer the question, was God just as sovereign in allowing this to be as he was in allowing this individual who brought any type of prosperity to the nation of Israel to be? And the the clear answer in scripture is yes. The Lord is the one who establishes people in those roles. More specifically, if something is not there to fulfill God's long-term purposes for the building of his church across the globe, then he will not allow it to happen. Do we trust that or not? And so if we can get past this whole wrestling of, is God sovereign over this or not, and rest in the fact that God's purposes will prevail, regardless of who is in power, his purposes will prevail, then the focus becomes a lot more intentional on this war of our flesh. Okay, if I can trust in the the reality that God's purposes will prevail, who am I supposed to be in the midst of it? Who am I supposed to be? Who are, more specifically, who are we as the church supposed to be in the face of this? Now, don't misunderstand me. In no way am I saying that somehow the church should just become passive participants in a cultural way of living. You should absolutely vote in line with a biblical conscience. You should absolutely be a good citizen in the place that God is. Place you. You should absolutely yearn for and fight for that which is just and right and true. But how we go about doing that says the most about who we serve. It's possible for us to submit to the institutions that God has allowed to exist and still disobey certain laws. Now, I'm going to give biblical examples of this, because I don't want these things to be said as if Matt Spangler is making some sort of notion about what this should look like. The first example that I'll draw your attention to is Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, we see this example of Daniel and his three friends, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, most frequently known as Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego. Taken to a foreign land, of which they are commanded by the king of that land to eat a certain way and to do certain things. Now, just to summarize their response, in their response, these four Israeli guys, you don't see them get up and throw fit. You don't see them dishonor the authority that they are now under. Instead, what you see them do is respectfully, there's the key, respectfully decline and suggest an alternative that fits under the guise of what they have been commanded by God himself. And in doing so, the Lord honors their decision. They actually become stronger than the rest of the young men who were all being told to do the same thing. And through their respectful disobedience, the Lord was made known. Now, a more recent example, uh, go to Acts chapter 5 with me. I want you to actually turn here. Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, Starting in verse 27 is where I'm going to start. Now, to bring you up to speed on what's happening in the book of Acts here. At the beginning of Acts, you see Jesus ascends to heaven. The disciples are left to do the work that they have been equipped to do. You see in Acts chapter 2... Uh, Peter preached the sermon at Pentecost, as, as we refer to it, where he reminds the people of what has just transpired. And you see thousands of people follow Jesus. And now, as they go out from here, the disciples continue to preach faithfully the gospel, the good news that there is salvation in Jesus' name. They continue to proclaim these truths. And in so doing... They are arrested, they're thrown into prison. Then right before this section in Acts chapter 5, uh, they're actually, uh, God frees them from the prison. And so the religious leaders come and find that the guards are still there. Everything is still as it was, but there's no prisoners there. And then they, in fact, find them, uh, find them back preaching the same word that they were arrested for in the first place. And one might ask, why would they continue preaching this word if it got them thrown in prison? Well, because that's what God told them to do. So that's what they were going to do. And so in verse 27 of Acts chapter 5, it says, And when they had brought them, so they they, they went and gathered them up again. And if you look right before this, uh, verse 25, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the people that they were sharing the word with, that's who the guard was afraid of. It wasn't afraid of these men who were preaching the word. There's a key difference here that we need to take note of. And what you don't see is these guys don't make a scene. They don't make—they—they they go with the guard, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, That would be the authoritative structure at the time. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And I love what we see in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Now, I don't know of a more practical and invigorating example of how followers of Christ can honor authoritative structures and yet disobey the very rule that they're commanding of them. But here is where the rubber meets the road. Our submission to any earthly institution should never exceed our submission to God's authority. But that does not mean that we have the right, because we are submitting to God's authority, to disrespect human institutions. What does this look like practically? If you find great satisfaction in demeaning authoritative institutions for what they stand for, that is not the way of a follower of Jesus. If you decide that you are going to make it your aim to humiliate anyone who you think is an idiot for what they believe, that is not the way of a follower of Jesus. The question needs to be, how do we as the church... Respect authoritative structures while at the same time submitting only in obedience to the Word of God. Now here's what it may cost you. It may cost you your job. It may cost you status. It may cost you relationships. But the question still needs to be answered. Who do I serve? Who do I serve? Who do we serve? Now, this very exhortation, be subject to, submit yourselves to, is followed again in verses 18 through 23, specifically in reference to slaves towards their earthly masters. Servants, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, any logical person should read that and go, what is this talking about? This is not the way that I would respond in my flesh. Well, I see if, I, if I'm treated in a way that is unjust in this, my natural inclination is not to submit myself under that now we also need to understand some cultural context here when we think about slavery as it is dealt with in biblical seasons it is not the same as what you and i are familiar with slavery to that has been abolished to be in fact there was many different regulation and rules around that in biblical times And in fact, if we follow the the wicked way of how the Romans enslaved people, it was eventually abolished through the spread of the gospel. Through the spread of the gospel. But in the midst of what is taking place here, Peter is communicating to the church a different way of living. A way of living that declares you are ambassadors For Christ, you are followers of Jesus. Your citizenship is not here. So how do you live as a citizen of his kingdom while you are still in this one? It looks different. Everyone say, it looks different. For this is a gracious thing, verse 19. When mindful of God. Understand, in verse 13, it was be subject for the Lord's sake. And here in verse 19, it was being mindful of God. It's a gracious thing when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Why do you think that is a gracious thing when we're mindful of God? If we stop and ponder that, I want us to think about Jesus. Would we say it was just or unjust that Jesus suffered for our sin? That's not just. He took a payment upon himself that was not his. Which means if you and I, bearing the name of Jesus... Endure suffering or hardship for that name. That is being like Jesus. This was not a burden that was mine to bear and I bore it unjustly. But praise be to God because my Savior bore that burden for me. That's the gospel. And so when we read something like this, it should cause attention tension in us. That should be followed immediately by humility If we look to the gospel If we look to what we've been given in Christ Now, we think about this biblical exhortation And one might wrestle with practically What does this look like? Well, the principle for the biblical slave Is applied the same as it would be for a modern day employee You may serve a believing or unbelieving boss, and this highlights what the behavior of the church should be in that setting. May we not be a people who contribute to the day-to-day gossip and slander of people who've been put in authority over us. May we be a people who seek to encourage who seek to spur on towards what we know to be right and true. May we be people who, as Colossians would say, do everything as to the Lord and not for men. That means even as frustrated as I may be with the person over me, you know what? Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm not serving you. I'm serving Christ. And if that means that I'm going to get taunted or slandered or made fun of, praise be to God. Just like the Disciples who were beaten after being questioned, after having been thrown in prison, they leave and man, they're rejoicing. We got to suffer for the name of Jesus. Family, I don't know the last time that I felt nor I heard someone express joy at that to me. Because we convince ourselves that if I follow Jesus, life is good. Family, I believe we're entering seasons already where it will become more hostile towards those who boldly stand for what the Word of God says. We have to answer the question, who do I serve? Who do we serve? What are we willing to lay at the altar and say, "I take it all. There's no other name that I will serve. As we sang earlier, I surrender all. Do we? That's one of those songs that we know well and I love to hear people sing. But I sit there and I go, we know this song, but I don't think we know how to do this. I I don't think we know how to surrender our families on the altar of our devotion to Christ. I don't think we know how to surrender our money and our possessions, our status, our success, our Our dreams of the future. I don't don't think we practically know. Family, it begins with an identity shift. An identity shift away from who I've always seen myself to be. To that of a servant. That of a servant. Our obedience to any earthly position should never exceed our obedience to God's commands. Our obedience to any earthly position should never exceed our obedience to God's commands. Now, the last question as we look at all of this that I want us to wrestle with is why would God call the church to behave this way? Why would God call the church to do this? Because he easily could have just as clearly said, make a scene. Make it really clear who you are. Be loud. Be obnoxious. And there's some people who claim the name of Christ that don't need an instruction to do that. They're already doing it. My goodness. Why would God call the church to behave this way? Verse 12. Look at that with me. Clear back there. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles or the unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of Christ's return. Why would God call us to behave this way? For the lost. For the lost to see a difference amongst the people who claim the name of Jesus. I fear that oftentimes... There is less and less difference, family. And that scares me. Because why would people come to Jesus if it looks no different than the way that they're living now? We hear this same phraseology in verse 12 that Jesus actually spoke in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, you are the salt of the earth. And... Let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not glory to me, right? My, my efforts should never be to amp myself up, glorify my name, but His. Point people to Him. Why would God call the church to behave this way? Verse 15, that we would silence the ignorance of foolish people. Think about that. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. By serving, by humility, by patience. Think about Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. Do you want to put to shame or bring foolishness to those who practice evil and wicked? Be a servant. So it's not just for the lost, it's for the Lord. (laughs) You serve the Lord. We see this again. Jesus teaching in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. One of the most challenging aspects of Jesus teaching. Where it says, if someone slaps you on on the right cheek... Do what. Turn to him the other also. If someone sues you for your tunic or for for your coat, give him your tunic too. If someone forces you to go one mile with them, go two with them. And then, right after that, Jesus goes, "Love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you." You talk about a culture shift. My goodness. That's different. That's not how my flesh wants to respond. And at the end of that is where there's a reminder that you don't take revenge. Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. In other words, we serve a God who is perfectly just. We serve a God who will bring all wrongs into right. But he's going to do it in his time. And we can celebrate the hope that we've been given because God will make all wrongs right. And we should also operate in fear, knowing that whatever is hidden under the surface is not hidden to God. And that should bring a humility that goes, may I just serve? In Proverbs 25, we have this example. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you I don't know if you have ever had an opportunity to do this it is one of my favorite things to do truly when someone is really upset or prone to slander you or speak evil against you to just love them unconditionally now here's the tricky part. Your flesh goes, I'm going to love you out of spite. <laughs> because I, I'm going to pray, there's some literal coals that fall on your head. All right? that, that's what our flesh says. Instead, here's what it should look like. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And he still died and the opportunity still exists for the very people who killed Jesus to come to faith even after he had risen and ascended. The very people that killed him. So our response to those who we see as enemies. Should be from the same point of grace. Because you know what? Scripture says you and I were enemies of that of the cross as well. Stuck in our sin, not free, enslaved to ourselves, set free through Christ alone. The last reason why would God call the church to behave this way, verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example. Everyone say, an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God calls the church to behave this way, that we would look more and more like Jesus. So not just for the lost, not just for the glory of the Lord, but for the church to be who God has called the church to be. So I take you back to verse 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. And I want to ask you and challenge you today. Who do you serve? In John chapter 6, Jesus himself said, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. In Mark 20, verse 28, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And in John 13, we see Jesus set the very example by which we're called to follow, starting with one another. When Jesus humbled himself, took the form of a servant and washed to the disciples' feet. And said, as you've seen me do, so also do to one another. And then he goes on to say, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Family, this is hard for us to live out, especially in the culture we live in today. But I want to challenge us as a people to be different. And in the same breath that this can just be a really humbling, heavy message when we wrestle with it, I also just want to speak encouragement to those of you who I have already seen seeking to live this out. Instances I am fully aware of that others are not, where there is every opportunity for you to slander someone who has completely decimated you. And yet you choose to follow Jesus. People who have suffered unimaginable tragedies, injustice, wrongs, and you continue to worship a God who is faithful. Profound stories... Of darkness. And you continue to pursue. Walking in the light that's been given you in Christ. Family we have an opportunity today. To live differently. But it means that every day. That you and I have breath in our lungs. We have to stop and answer the question. Who will I serve today? And my motivation for doing so must be rooted in what I already realize Christ has done for us. Now this brings us ultimately to our remembrance of what Christ has done for us in communion. So I'm going to ask those serving communion today to come. And I want to point you guys to the last two verses of this chapter in verses 24 and 25 of 1st Peter chapter 2 This is the very reason that we as a church take communion together and it's the very should be the very motivation by which everything else that flows out of who we are comes Verse 24, he himself, being Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, that's, that scripture is true to those who've said, I follow Jesus. And when we take communion, that's what you're saying. This doesn't save you. This doesn't make you righteous or holy. This doesn't set you apart. Jesus does that. This This isn't going to improve your spiritual life. This isn't going to somehow make you a better person. Jesus is the only one who can do that more specifically following jesus and that's why when when this comes i want I want to challenge you to answer the question do you do you follow him and if you if you're unsure or you go, oh, no, I don't, then don't take this because in so doing. It's dishonest. It's it's every one of us that takes this, we are together saying, this is who we will follow. This is who we will serve. This is the only way to life. And it is through that that we are united together. That alone. And so, I want you to reflect on these words in First Peter 2. As this is passed, as you reflect on... Who we are as the church, as we pray in the midst of this, I want you to reflect on these words and be reminded that it is only through Christ that we have been healed from the wounds that our own sin caused. And it is only Christ who will make right all of those wounds across creation when he returns. Father, as we wrestle with these truths, I pray that you would make us a people who are different Set apart for your purposes, God. Father, we struggle against our flesh. Lord, this war exhausts us so often, and so we need your Spirit's help to invigorate and motivate us on towards what you have called us to in Christ. Lord, we know that this is not the way the world does this, and it is so challenging, and I praise you that you've given us a community of people where we can encourage one another towards this aim. May we do that. And Lord, may you transform us in the process to be more and more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.